This is an ABC podcast. Grass-fed cattle producers says it will be focused and nimble when it comes to dealing with industry issues. At the first board meeting today, Queensland-based David Foote was elected as chair alongside six board members. David Foote has only recently stepped back as head of Australian Country Choice, which operates Australia's largest vertically integrated beef supply chain and also a small cattle property in southeast Queensland. David has David Foote explains to Amy Phillips why the expensive and distracting restructure was required. I think Cattle Council of Australia worked out that its advocacy program needed a refresh. The state farming organisation history was potentially holding it back from achieving its national advocacy plan. And, you know, it's a huge movement for an organisation to stand aside you know, from 1979, they've been advocating on behalf of the industry. And I think it's really important to recognise the fact that they wished to stand aside to give a new entity a chance to succeed as a representative body. Unfortunately, the restructure has taken years. It's taken a lot of energy and focus away from grass-fed beef issues. How will you be bringing your wealth of experience with Australian Country Choice, which was a vertically integrated beef company? You had both uh, grazing properties, feedlots, and as a processor. How are you going to bring those skills to unite the industry? Amy, fortunately, this is not about me, about David Foote. I have a really exciting cohort board of directors that cover almost every aspect of the industry in. Yes, ACC has given me the opportunity to go from the breeding property through to the retail counter, which is which is a really important part of understanding the whole supply chain. But each of the directors have special niche experiences and opportunities to bring to the table. And I think as a collective and as a very, I guess, much more nimble collective, we're down to a, down to a board of eight, uh, which may or may not grow to, to nine. In the future, I just think we're actually going to be able to be able to be more focused and maybe more directional for the time being. How will you unite the industry, though? How are you going to truly represent uh, the tens of thousands of grass-fed beef producers? That's a really, really good question. But the, the the first priority focus, and let's say, Amy, the the Board of Cattle Australia is only twenty two hours old at the moment, so we we've still Still need a little bit of breathing room because everything's a priority. But the one thing that came out of our initial board meeting yesterday was the need, desire and the want to unite those 40,000-odd cattle producers across Australia for us to represent them in their advocacy at national levels. How will your group be funded so that you're robust against the likes of your other advocacy groups within the beef chain like the Australian Lot Feeders Association and the Australian Meat Industry Council? It all comes back to memberships based on value propositions. So we need to be able to show the, the people who are out there who haven't chosen to participate in membership of Bird Cattle Council or their SFO, but now that they want to invest in Cattle Australia because they're seeing value, value for money. The other organisations, it's it's tough out there for everybody. There's a high cost movement to try and cover the continent's largest Australia, and with a membership potential base of forty thousand, it's not a cheap process. But we have no silver bullets, we have no gold lining, but we're there. We have sufficient funds to at least get the process started and rolled, 
but we'll also be reaching to a wider audience. We'll, we'll be looking at the RDCs in terms of some program funding where practicable. We'll certainly be looking to seek sponsorship to help it, to help us on this journey. What's going to be Cattle Australia's first issue that you'll address? First issue to address is to harness uh, and unite the 40,000 producers out there at the moment. Your board's not worried about the biosecurity issues, which are only ramping up. We've only just heard about lumpy skin becoming closer again to Australia. Is biosecurity on your radar? Biosecurity should be on the radar of everybody involved in the ruminant industry um, or the cloven-footed industry for FMD. It's certainly a discussion point, but we alone aren't going to change the focus of that. But in concert, this process has been involved in cattle council before it's involved in every peak council in discussions with government and animal health australia so we are very much at the table in that journey and we're advocating clearly on behalf of our of our members and where to here for your group then when can members expect to see cattle australia uh, lobbying on their behalf and, and you know banging on doors in canberra um well it was brisbane last night amy Canberra's re-meeting Thursday, Friday. They probably haven't got room for us yet. And we're not ready because we haven't got a clear message yet of what we are requiring um, from the from the federal government. But when we have, then we'll be lined up on the door first thing in the morning. There's, of course, a legal battle also underway, uh, brought on by Cattle Producers Australia. Um, what bearing might it have on Cattle Australia? I'm not expecting it to have a bearing because whilst we maintain the ACM, that was a previous dislocation. We're sensitive to it and aware of it, and we'll be trying to meet with all those producers out there to, to I guess, sort it and settle it to go forward. And hopefully they become members. Ideally, they will want to become members, Amy, yes. Cattle Australia Chair David Foote speaking with Amy Phillips there. That's been quite a long-running process, that election and creation of Cattle Australia. We'll keep following how that goes now that they have their board members. Now, uh, farmers are sharing their personal stories to help others prevent accidents and tragedies on farm, and this includes Matthew and Denica Koff from Stockport in the Mid-North, who have worked with Grain Growers and Safe Work SA to produce a video that stresses the importance of communication about on-farm hazards. Brooke Nindorf has this story. In March 2020, uh, our employee was uh, working on his own and he was involved in an accident with a piece of machinery. So we've been working um, to assist him through rehabilitation since that day. That's Danica and Matthew Koff. They farm at Stockport in the Mid-North and are using their own first-hand experience to remind others about the importance of safety on the farm. Farm safety doesn't have to be overwhelming. It doesn't have to be a massive big list of policies and procedures and all that. It can be as simple as, as sitting around with a cup of tea and looking at your farm business and, and just drawing out some very simple improvements that can be done to vastly improve uh, you know, farm health and safety. And if you're talking about it with the people in your business, you might just find that conversation does save someone. It does make them stop and think before they use something in a way that's not safe. Stockport farmers Danica and Matthew Koff. Shona Gowal is the Chief Operating Officer with Grain Growers and says the organisation had already released a lot of farm safety resources already when they were approached by the Koff family to share their story. 
they felt that they had a really important message to share about communication and on-farm hazards. And so it worked in really nicely with the resources that grain growers had released and then to be able to share that message from Danica and Matthew about their experiences. What do you think it is about those first-hand experiences and hearing it from the person that makes the message stand out even more? I think at the end of the day, no farmer wants to have somebody injured on their farm or as part of their business. Uh, we hear that all the time from our growers, that they are really conscious that they want their farms to be to be safe places and, you know, their family enterprises. But what we do realise is that um, farming environments are unpredictable and that there's lots of changes from day to day. Weather's an obvious one with that. And um, Danica and Matthew just have a really important message there about that it's communication between you as an employer, between the, the people that you've got working on your farm, and that um, these conversations are just a great way to highlight some of the hazards that are out there, and then that leads to um, improvements that you can immediately identify and how you can look about implementing changes to address those. How often does grain growers hear about incidents that happen on farms? I think anyone that's working in agriculture, you do hear about things that are happening on farm, but that's things that's a culture um, that we want to make sure is recognised that can be, be changed and addressed. Um, I know that anyone that's ever had um, an incident on their farm, it, it really does take its toll on them. Um, and you'll, you'll see in Danica and Matthew's video how they found that experience. It was It was really heartbreaking for them. And so that Farm safety is really, really critical and people um, working on the farm there are trying to put things in place to address it. And it can take change. Um, it can be a generational implementation at times um, and we know that people can feel it can be a little bit overwhelming um, but there's resources out there that can be used to take a look at your farm business uh, and the ones that I've mentioned from grain growers were intended to be a straightforward resource that can really help with improving those things. What have you noticed, Shona, over the years? Do you think it's getting better with, with farm safety and, and people understanding what they need to do to, to stay safe on the farm? I think that there definitely has been improvements in farm safety and we've seen the statistics are recognising that. But at the end of the day, one person injured is one person too many. So so we really want to um, make sure that that number is at zero where it can be. Um, and we know that there's there's things that do make farming a more hazardous occupation um, and that it is there are resources out there that are to support um, growers and, and farming communities in, in making sure that they can reduce that risk wherever possible. I think with that is that we've, we've heard lots of different innovation from growers about how they're approaching farm safety on their own farm. You can hear from Danica and Matthew about the, the approach that they took. And we've heard from, from others that are even doing things like finding out what sort of um, outside interests that their employers, employees have and making sure, you know, that if they're a part of the local footy club or, or the local netball team, that if that's something that's important to them, that they've got time in their calendar and in their diaries that enable them to, to go off and make their sporting training or, or, you know, make the local school pick up or whatever it might be so that they're not therefore rushing through jobs and, you know, maybe safety could, could end up being um, one of the side effects um, or, or not listen to on that. So there's things like that where people are really thinking about how to make their farms a safer place to work um, and, and it's great to see that out there and we encourage everyone to consider it and, and think about the Grand measures growers. that they can um, put in place around that. Grain Growers Chief Operating Officer Shona Goal speaking with Brooke Nindorf. It's coming up to 18 minutes past 12. 
nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Yes, do get your nominations in. There's lots of different categories, including uh, ones for younger farmers. And speaking of younger farmers, if you're a university student and you're really committed to a career in agriculture, applications are open for the 2023 AgriFutures Horizon Scholarship Program. Recipients receive $10,000 over two years and the opportunity to network with the biggest minds, biggest and brightest minds, I should say, in agriculture. Now, it's open to all sorts of students. It's not just for people who are studying agriculture. The industry is facing a skills shortage in a number of areas and as a result, scholarship recipient Lachlan Bryant told Jennifer Nichols that the opportunities are incredible. I'm a 19-year-old uni student. I've just completed my second year at the University of Queensland based out of Gatton campus um, and I'm studying agricultural science, majoring in agronomy, uh, which is soil and plant science. People that don't know what agronomy is, I'm off a farm in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, a dairy and poultry farm, which my mum is currently working, but it's third generation, so it's uh, kind of in my blood, you could say. But yeah, I'm really passionate about agriculture and making a difference for farmers into the future, and that's why I'm studying ag. And I got involved in the AgriFutures program because I'm a uni student, and I, <laughs> if I'm to be honest, really appreciated the money. But what I've gotten out of it um, was probably a lot more in their professional development programs and, and that kind of thing. So that's something that AgriFutures is really, really good for. It's a $10,000 bursary, isn't it? So that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a $10,000 bursary. But on top of that, you also get um, a placement with um, your sponsor. So I'm sponsored by Grains and Research Development Corporation. It's a two-year program and every year you get a two-week placement, but you also get the opportunity to go down to uh, the Have a Horizon conference. Everyone from AgriFutures meets together and then part of that is all of the scholars go down there and we do a professional development program with them, which sounds weird, but the scholarship program has given me a lot more opportunity through the networking and conferences and that kind of thing than the money has. Um, there's a lot of scholarship programs out there that can give you money and, and it's really appreciated. But yeah, to be able to actually grow and connect and learn is really valuable. How do your peers that you went to school with view what you're doing now? <laughs> I think um, agriculture's got quite a, a negative uh, negative view. <laughs> I was always given a bit of a hard time for not doing a real science when I studied agricultural science, even though it's, you know, I study just the same subjects as anyone else doing. So, you know, I study a lot of the uh, UQ science subjects that are relevant across the board. Um, so I don't think I probably got as much respect for what I was studying until I realized how much money there is in these scholarships and that kind of thing, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Really? It's, yeah, it's, I don't know, people think that agriculture is a bit of a, a dumb, not very smart industry to be in, even though it's 
got some really amazing minds out there and yeah, lots of development, lots of opportunity. And young people with skills are so desperately needed. I was just looking at some of these statistics that the average age of an agricultural worker is 51, which is 10 years higher than the national average. And in 2022, there are over 5,000 entry-level positions across the agricultural industry with only 800 to 900 graduating students to fill them. Which is, yeah. <laughs> so the job prospects are quite huge for you. Absolutely, yeah. And that's when we went there to the last Futures conference. Yeah, they're just screaming out for people. You know, they're already offering positions um, Yeah, because they just want us really badly. And I think that that's agriculture as a whole. You know, if, if you want to work in an industry that's got a lot of funding at the moment, <laughs> agriculture is ready to boom. Um, and AgriFutures is not the only scholarship that's out there at the moment. I would argue, you know, talking to people that agriculture has the most scholarships out of any industry out there. And I don't think a lot of people realise either how relevant it is to everyone. In the AgriFutures program, there's, you know, there's a very broad range of people. There's food scientists that are in the program. There are engineers, people studying marine biology. Um, So it's not just, you know, the agricultural science students that have got this opportunity. It's a really, really broad range of people. Um, And that's the great thing about agriculture is that you can be an engineer. You can be pretty much anything because it's such a broad industry. And if you had computer skills, you'd be in high demand too, working out things like logistics, programming... Absolutely. Yeah, no, all of these things. And that's what the that's what the AgriFuture scholarships, it's moving towards too. Um, you know, so anyone can apply if you've got an interest in the agricultural industry and you want to apply your studies to that. Lachlan Bryant, an AgriFuture's Horizon Scholarship recipient and ag science student from Canberra on the Sunshine Coast hinterland. And uh, he's not the only one who has taken this up, and you can too. Applications for the scholarship close on Friday the 13th of January. So do get your applications in. A lot of people have just finished uh, their school year. They're perhaps looking at university, and I'm sure a scholarship would come in handy. So do consider those AgriFuture's Horizons scholarships, uh, among many others. There's many of scholarships for agriculture if you are interested in pursuing that as a study at university. Let across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, where Senior Forecaster Vince Rollins joins me. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. Now, I was driving to work this morning, and it was sleety and grey, and I, and I was cold as well. I thought it was more like August weather rather than December weather. Just how cold is it compared to normal at this time of year? <coughs> Yeah, it has been a bit like that, Cassie. Summer seems to have disappeared, but uh, yeah, looking at uh, some of the the forecast anomalies um, around the region, yeah, maximum temperatures yesterday, which is obviously today's going to be pretty similar. We're looking at uh, anywhere between about five and ten degrees below average. So up in the, <clears throat> the pastoral districts, we had a few locations uh, like Roxby Downs was nine degrees below average for this time of year and Amuka 9 degrees as well but uh, around Hawker they're actually 11 degrees um, below average for this time of year so yeah it's pretty pretty unusual to to see uh, these sort of temperatures at this time of year I mean the, the patterns do move through pretty quickly and it's not, you know, not uh, out of the question that we do see you know cooler temperatures at the beginning of summer but <clears throat> yeah it just feels like uh, summer has uh, sort of disappeared but uh, there is some good news though we are going to see temperatures warming over 
the next few days. But at the moment, uh, these cooler southerlies are going to continue through today uh, and the next couple of days. We've got a pretty dominant high-pressure system sitting south of WA at the moment. It's really moving slowly. So uh, as it just tracks eastwards, you know, we will see these winds continuing, just slowly going round to the southeast over the next couple of days. But, uh, yeah, temperatures are going to remain uh, quite a bit below average for at least for the next couple of days and a little bit of shower activity around southern parts as well we did see uh, some falls around in the last 24 hours and most being at Mount Gambier with 11 millimetres uh, up in the Adelaide Hills we saw some falls getting up to around 4 millimetres and uh, a few millimetres around parts of the lower southeast just north of Mount Gambier and that, that's basically due to a little frontal line of showers that uh, moved through the southeast this morning. Currently sitting just south of Adelaide, so we see those showers just pushing a bit further north as the afternoon progresses, but uh, yeah, not looking at too much rainfall else, elsewhere across the state. There is a slight risk we could see some thunderstorm activity over near the WA border as we get into the latter part of the afternoon but uh, at the moment looks like most of that activity is uh, yeah, just well uh, west of the border so we see it happens this afternoon but uh, as I mentioned over the next couple of days the high continues to move eastwards we will see the showers in the south just easing and contracting to coastal fringes still expecting that thunderstorm activity to um, possibly develop or continue in the the northwest of the state and as we get towards the sort of weekend it looks like there's more of a chance of those thunderstorms moving into our state and it could be quite gusty as well and there's potential there for some relatively good falls with those thunderstorms so we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that but (coughs) elsewhere across the state it's looking uh, pretty dry those thunderstorms do uh, track eastwards over the latter part of the weekend and early next week just as a, a bit of a weak trough moves across the state but uh, that's going to help drive temperatures up a little bit as well so ahead of that trough we will see winds swinging around to the east uh, and eventually a bit more northeasterly so um, yeah with uh, we'll see these temperatures certainly warming um, as we get through the weekend and early next week so I return to some temperatures in the low to mid 30s particularly over western and northern parts of the state but eventually that warm air will track right across the state so uh, Cassie if you're hanging out to see some warmer weather is a bit over this this cooler these cooler conditions then uh, certainly there is some warmer uh, more summer like weather on the way for for South Australia so it would be nice to uh, get rid of those jackets and jumpers again and uh, see some warm weather moving across it would it's it's uh, I mean no one's wishing for a heat wave but it would be nice to not feel like it was winter just some some nice mild temperatures in the 20s would be lovely I think at this time of year it would be I think we, we haven't seen that many warm days really for you know being pretty close to Christmas so uh, yeah it'd be good to to get a few more warmer days. Thanks for that Vince Rollins from the Bureau of Meteorology there in the far west of New South Wales it's going to be sunny but it's going to get quite windy tomorrow winds picking up to 25 to 35 kilometres an hour overnight getting down to 11 to 15 degrees but the daytime temperatures reaching the low to high 20s the lower western pretty similar situation partly cloudy again a little windy 20 to 30 kilometres an hour overnight 
cooling down to 7 to 10 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low 20s. More to come in the next half hour, including how to braid garlic. It's not something I've tried, but I'll have more on that soon as we approach 12.30 on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today. Once again, the focus is on the Riverland with Agriculture Minister Murray Watt visiting this week. And it's not just the flood that's on people's minds. We're in a desperate situation. We need to sit down and work, find a way forward. A lot of people are going to get hurt out of this and we can't afford, particularly in South Australia, to lose the wine industry. More on that soon. And do you love your passion fruit on your pavlova at Christmas? I'll have an update on the availability of the fruit this summer. Everything's a bit topsy-turvy at the moment with this weather being a little cooler in some parts of the state and very hot in other parts of the country as well. So uh, we'll take a look at what passion fruit is doing this year in the lead up to Christmas. But first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, a community on Queensland's Western Downs is reeling after six people, including two police officers, were killed in a shooting. Four officers were at a rural property at Weambilla, west of Brisbane, yesterday as part of a search for a missing New South Wales man when they came under fire. 29-year-old Constable Rachel McCrow and 26-year-old Constable Matthew Arnold from the Chinchilla Station were killed, along with a member of the public. The Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen is heaping pressure on his political opponents to back the government's plan to curb skyrocketing power prices. Federal Parliament is being recalled on Thursday to vote on legislation, which includes a one-year cap on wholesale gas prices and a $1.5 billion support package for households and business. The Coalition says it's open to supporting parts of the bill, but has not yet settled its overall position. And the State Government has secured hotel accommodation for people who are left with nowhere to go when their homes are flooded in the river. 200 beds have been booked up and down the river to provide emergency and short-term accommodation. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. Riverland wine growers have shared their struggles with the Federal Agriculture Murray Watt amid flood concerns. Uh, the meeting follows an invitation from the region's industry body, Riverland Wine, that's requesting a $5 million support package to help sell more wine and support growers to, to transition to new varieties. Minister Watt told Eliza Berla she wanted to see firsthand the issues that the Riverland is facing. Well, obviously the Riverland is going through a difficult time at the moment and I've I've now seen for myself the water levels that we're talking about here and, of course, there's more to come in coming weeks. So there's nothing quite like being on the ground and seeing it for yourself to understand what people are going through. And I think I was certainly aware before coming here that local, local wine growers had been doing it tough for a couple of years, losing the China market and some of the other issues, but just hearing it from people face to face has been very useful. So I think clearly there's some immediate help that we can be providing to the state government and councils around dealing with these floods and it's good to see that we've got three defence high clearance vehicles coming to the region in the next couple of days but we'll be working very cooperatively with the state government to make sure that whatever this region needs it gets. And what is some of the immediate assistance that your government is considering? Look, I think at the moment because we're in that sort of pre-flood 
period, even though there is water around, we know that worse is coming. It's very likely, I think, that we'll need to see some extra extra infrastructure support and potentially personnel as well if the state government gets to the point that it thinks that it needs defence personnel to back up its own SES crews then that's obviously something we consider and we've done elsewhere and I think before too long we're probably going to be having some conversations about more financial support for people as well already that between the state government and the federal government there's been some small levels of assistance provided but ordinarily more of that flows once you've had the peak of the flood and obviously that's expected in the next week or two. Growers are concerned that I know the state government's saying that support should be immediate but what is immediate and often with other disasters that months or years afterwards people are still waiting. Is there anything that your government or that you might be working with other governments to do to make sure that's in people's banks before Christmas? Yeah, well ever since we were elected a few months ago we've tried to take a different approach to dealing with natural disasters and it really comes down to being better prepared and responding much more quickly. So we're doing that preparation work now with the states and if you have a look at how we've operated in terms of the other states that have had floods recently I think you'd see that we've been able to act support much more quickly than what we've seen in years gone by and that's certainly what we'd be trying to do here in South Australia as well. The way these things work is that state governments make requests for support, we consider them and then either agree or don't agree. More often than not we agree and we try to do that as quickly as we can. So depending on what we see in South Australia it would be reasonable to expect more payments for individuals but also potentially farmers and small businesses. It just depends how severe the damage ends up being. And have you had a chance to look at the Riverland Wines position paper and uh, their requests for financial assistance for growers? I have, and in fact they communicated with me uh, a few weeks back wearing my agriculture hat uh, even before uh, we saw these floods come along, and that's something we're giving thought to. One of the really key things that we want to try and do is continue to open up new markets for product, because uh, even before I came here today I'd heard from Riverland growers um, that with the loss of the China market, and uh, as much as we would like to see that turn around soon, that might take a little bit of time, but we're, we're coming currently funding grant programs to open up new markets in places like Vietnam, Thailand. We think there's some opportunities in India as well, given the size of the population there. And the sheer amount of wine that is currently sitting in storage vats means there's just no capacity for next year's vintage, let alone the year after. So the more that we can be doing to help open up those new markets, that gets product offshore, making money for local wine growers, and that's what we want to see happen. When can people in the Riverland expect to hear anything from you about further assistance for the floods? on one hand, and further assistance for wine growers? Yeah, look, I think in terms of flood assistance, as I say, ordinarily most of that would flow once you get through the peak because that that gives you a sense of what is actually needed. Until you see those floods happen, everyone's sort of second-guessing what will end up happening, but we will act as quickly as we possibly can to get assistance out to people. In terms of the wine growers and broader assistance, that's something we're working on, and I'd hope to be able to have something to say in the new year. Federal Minister for Agriculture, Murray Watt. Riverland Wines Lindell Rowe says she's hopeful that authorities will come to the table with an offer of support soon. We've had some really positive conversations and really positive feedback from government and you know when we're still in conversation with them so we're very hopeful that there's going to be some support. And just an update on vineyard inundation so last time we spoke we talked about how many hectares of vineyards would be inundated at 200 gigalitres. Inkalee from Vine Health said you have some new modelling on 250 gigalitres what that could look like. Again we're not saying that it will get to that but again we're about giving as much information to people as we possibly can so that's looking at about 900 hectares which is a considerable increase. Kultong grape grower Jack Papagiorgio says many families will suffer if the government can't provide further support for the industry. We're in a desperate situation. We need to sit down and work, find a way forward. It. Whereas we'll, a lot of people are going to get hurt out of this and we can't afford, particularly in South Australia, to lose the wine industry. Here in the Riverland, we, 
very much family orientated um, in prop when it comes to pro productions. There's a lot of tensions I hear between growers because some growers have not bothered to spray. The other grower next door is trying to protect his crops. So there's a little tension there. Yeah. You don't want that. And that that's just purely pressure comes on. Although the floods we understand that, but other stuff it's man made. Yeah. Some of our marketing and lost opportunities or just not talking to each other. Cool Tongue wine grape grower Jack Papagiorgio ending that story by Eliza Burlash. The State Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven says while the focus is on the immediate flood threat, discussions are ongoing with Riverland Wine and Persa about planning and support for the region and the broader industry. And while we're speaking about the river, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is urgently seeking an alternative way to consult with First Nations communities in the Northern Basin after cutting ties with an advisory group it says failed to deliver on contracts. The Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations, or NBAN, as it's known, was notified by the authority last month that contractual arrangements worth hundreds of thousands of dollars would be finalised. The MDBA confirmed the most recent major contracts provided by NBAN included $400,000 per year, uh, included a commitment of $400,000 per year to sustain NBAN's internal operations and a $1.25 million deal to fund a cultural flows project officer to assist First Nations people to develop cultural flow plans. Plans. Both contracts expired on October 31st. Under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, the authority has to consult with First Nations when approving water resource plans. And uh, the uh, water resource plans also set out how water is shared across the river system. And while other states have completed their WRP, New South Wales is actually running incredibly late with the MDBA approving just two of the 20 water resource plans required from that state. There's more information on that story online at abc.net.au slash rural. It is 21 minutes to one. Half a step forward, put to the pitch. ABC Sports, Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Live and ad-free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports, Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You'd like a bit of fresh passion fruit on your pavlova at Christmas? Well, yesterday when we were talking about pineapples, I got so many great recipes that I'm keen to know now how you actually like to use passion fruit in your cooking as well. Because, uh, well, while the pineapples are going to be thick on the ground, it seems they might be about, about the, the passion fruit might be a bit thin on the ground this year with the president of Passion Fruit Australia saying growers will be playing catch up for the next few years after a perfect storm of weather killed large amounts of vines this year. Dennis Chant told Jennifer Nichols he hoped supply would increase in time for Christmas, but many fields of purple passion fruit will need to be replanted. It's been a very challenging year, particularly in a lot of our growing areas. The main growing areas are the Tweed Valley, the Sunshine Coast, Bundaberg area and then far north Queensland. Most of those areas have had extraordinary amounts of rain, so fungal diseases, not being able to get on to spray, too much water, weather was too cold. So yeah, I think it's been the perfect storm actually against the industry this year, so it's been quite a challenge. And what has that meant for production compared to an average year? 
I think we're going to feel that probably for the next year or two because we generally uh, plant every uh, plants last about three years so a lot of crops have been totally wiped out so we'll be playing catch up for the next couple of years so I think production is probably particularly of the purple varieties that we get in the south I think there's more production of the Panama varieties which are growing up in North Queensland their production hasn't been as affected so the market supply for the purples is probably going to be a little bit tight over the next year or two but we're working very hard to get back to uh, what we were before. What's that going to mean with prices to consumers and supply for our PAVs over Christmas? Oh well hopefully, um, I know our own crops are starting to pick up a bit so we're hoping that we will have some supplies particularly of the purples for Christmas but because we are spread over such a wide region I'm sure there will be supplies coming on the market for Christmas time and it's always a good time for passion fruit sales obviously as you say for pavlova and that and demand for passion fruit pre-Christmas is always very strong so we're working very hard to ensure that we can supply that. I know in my coverage of the passion fruit industry over recent years at times the prices have been so far below the cost of production. How has that been tracking? Passion fruit is produced all year round and prices per case can vary from $25 to $150 depending on the supply. So a month or two ago you would have been paying $150 a case for purples because they are so scarce at the time. Come just after Christmas uh, prices should be back to more normal $30, $35. That depends then on what the supermarkets do with the prices because, you know, those margins obviously are a big factor in what the consumer pays for passion fruit. Things have been a bit quiet since COVID because the market's been so unpredictable. But pre-COVID, we were having some dialogue through our agents with the supermarkets to say, well, look, when there is good supplies, because supplies of passion fruit can pick up very quickly, we have these big flushes, and then there's a lot of fruit on the market. Now, that's the time when the supermarkets should be looking at putting them in on as a special to move the product and get more out there because passion fruit is very popular, but sometimes it can be an expensive fruit. If they were selling it in a bag of five or something like that rather than individually, that would make it more palatable. Yeah, and one of the challenges is being able to react when these big supply peaks come on because they're very hard to predict. We generally get about three or four peaks a year and you can't pick it for a week or two before. So, look, there are some challenges, but the acceptance of Australian passion fruit is very high. The quality is very high and we aim to continue that. The supermarkets obviously are, are a very big distributor of our product now, so we're keen to work with them to ensure that you know, they are available, good quality, at a, at a reasonable price. What about imports? I hear the potential of fruit coming in from Vietnam. Yeah, well, we've only just had a presentation today from the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, uh, the Federal Department, that uh, will uh, next week be releasing a draft report on the import of passion fruit into uh, Australia, or, or sorry, that will be released next year. Uh, today is the first time they've come to the industry to let us know what's going on. We have been aware that Vietnam is making an application to bring in passion fruit. The only response we can give relates to the biosecurity threats, factors such as the commercial factors, whether the market's going to be flooded with cheap passion fruit from Vietnam. That's not a factor that they take into account because we are part of the World Trade Organisation and we have to give market access where it is safe to give market access. Do you have any biosecurity concerns in regards to pests and diseases that are overseas that aren't currently in Australia? 
Well, biosecurity is very important to us. You know, we're involved in the Varroa mite control program, for instance. Now, that's costing the industry a lot of money. So we're very, very conscious that, you know, biosecurity, all the boxes are ticked. Now, one of the challenges for a small industry like passion fruit is where do we get the resources from to be very analytical about the type of pests that we should be looking at. And that's the sort of assurances that the people from the department are giving us at the moment, that they've had experts in Vietnam and it is open to the state governments and the industry to uh, scrutinise the processes that they're going through. So we're really putting them through the mill this morning. Um, The process they've got for Australia are very stringent, but it's not 100% fail-safe. It's a difficult line to tread, isn't it? Because we like to export our produce, and so they need fair access in too, as long as it's not going to jeopardise things. And and the point was made that, you know, 60% or more of Australian produce is exported, you know, so we're in the world market and we have to be conscious of that. Are many Australian, if any, passion fruit exported? No, there's no export market out of Australia for fresh passion fruit anyway. Um, We totally survive on uh, supplying the domestic market. And what's your favourite way to eat passion fruit? Oh, look, I just like to crack it and just eat it fresh in the field, you know, and we do the taste tests all the time just to see how it's going, you know, and, you know, whether it's nice and sweet. So typically purple passion fruit, you harvest them when they've fallen on the ground and that's when they're at their sweetest. Uh, The Panamas, they tend to pick them. But, yeah, no, I just like it fresh straight out of the skin. Passion Fruit Australian President Dennis Chant speaking with Jennifer Nichols. He likes it straight out of the passion fruit. How do you like your passion fruit? You can text me on 0467 922 891 or phone 1-300-222-891. I don't eat a lot of passion fruit. I think I quite like passion fruit in smoothies and things like that. That's probably the main way I would eat it, but I'd love to know how you eat it. You can text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1-300-222-891. I'm going to take you to Wairiwa now in eastern Victoria because a program called Top Soils by the Lancare and East Gippsland Catchment Management Authority caused a bit of a stir among farmers there last week and Peter Somerville went along. Here at Wairiwa between Now and Hour and Orbost in East Gippsland, farmers have gathered in the local hall. They're huddling around a small plastic container all in the name of improving their properties. They bury dung, they let water into the soil, they move the soil around and you know, encourage more earthworms. People just seem to be wanting them. Penny Gray is the Far East Victoria Landcare and Topsoils facilitator. She says the farmers here are getting excited about dung beetles. They're really keen to um, diversify their species and get a greater range across the seasons because each species of beetle is active at a particular time or night or day. So yeah, they're fascinating. But here at Wairiwa today, farmers are learning the nuances of trapping dung beetles and breeding them in nurseries on their farms. Penny says that's a relatively new development. We're just encouraging everyone to give it a go. And like we said, we might do a dung beetle capture bus trip. Who knows? (laughs) Is that on the cards? Oh, hopefully. You've got to think big. <laughs> if you think about your classic uh, sheep or cattle property, there's a lot of dung being produced every day. If it weren't for the dung beetles, that dung would remain on the surface. It wouldn't be being incorporated into the soil, so you're losing all of the rich organic matter. And you're also providing a fantastic breeding ground for flies 
and also gastrointestinal nematodes. The dung beetles incorporate the dung into the soil and suppress pest and parasite life cycles. That's Dr Russ Barrow. He's the presenter today and a researcher with Eco Insects. It's so encouraging when you come to these events. The enthusiasm of the participants is infectious and people often say I'm an enthusiastic presenter but it's because of the, you know, the infectious uh, enthusiasm that I get from them. Dung beetles are just good. I mean, there's, people are always saying but they're an imported species. Is there any negative side effect? And everyone mentions the cane toad. Dung beetles are just good from, from you know, day one. They've been carefully selected to operate on the dung of introduced animals, sheep, cattle, horses, and don't interfere with uh, uh, other ecosystems. Part of today you are focusing on building nurseries for dung beetles. Can you tell me about that? What is a dung beetle nursery? How would you build one? What do you do with it? Sure. So a, a dung beetle nursery is a, a reduced number of beetles typically 100 to 200 beetles that we would place into a one square metre container. Typically there we're taking an IBC, an intermediate bulk container, chopping it in half to produce a container that we place soil in and that becomes a home for dung beetles for anything up to 12 months. So we would take that uh, container, the IBC, and we would place a colony of beetles, as I say, typically 100 to 200 beetles, feed them. In that container, they would continue to breed. And look, all things going to plan, at the end of the uh, season, we might have a tenfold increase. So those 100 beetles would turn into 1,000, 200 to 2,000. So rather than spending the money on buying in large amounts of beetles, you can invest that time into growing them yourself on your property. Jared Rush and Aminia Hep have travelled from Goongra today. They're trying to reintroduce dung beetles at their property after the bushfires. Last year when we moved back to Goongra, we bought a small herd of dairy cows and have noticed that there just aren't any dung beetles, so it's been a problem we've been talking about for a while. And what is the problem with that? Well, the cow dung just sits on top of the grass and doesn't break down very quickly at all. It just sits there for months sometimes and it makes it a lot harder for the grass to grow back and the fertility. And what have you learnt today? What will you do after this? Well we're going to set up a dung beetle nursery and uh, build up um, the species that we have been given and then we'll be able to reintroduce them back into our paddocks and our cell grazing for our cows and hopefully from there we'll be also um, able to spread them around town. But one of the other things that we learnt today was how to how to trap them when we're out Um, travelling around uh, from different farms and um, so that we can identify what species they are and then bring them back and um, hopefully we can get you know six to a dozen different species going um, in Goongara again. Is that something you can see yourself doing? Do you think you'll have dung beetle trapping holidays or go for dung beetle drives? Do you think that's part of your future now? I think it definitely could be. We might not go specifically on those holidays but we'll just bring the trap along whenever we go anywhere probably. (laughs) Jared Roosh and Amina Hep ending that report from Peter Somerville at the Wairiwa Hall. Their dung beetles are amazing little things, aren't they? Even though they're introduced, they do a power of good. Now, I was interested to hear how you liked to enjoy your passion fruit. It's not a fruit I eat very often, but I think Glenn from Goolwa might. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Kathy. Look, as a mere male, it enjoys a dessert with fruit. I've buy a passion fruit direct from a market here from a guy from Murray Bridge and I've applied it with uh, a lovely Greek on top of Greek um, firm uh, yogurt 
and I find that is a nice balance. The creaminess of the yogurt with the with the lovely sharp tough flavour of uh, passion fruit, maybe a little bit of sprinkle of um, of a uh, uh, something like um, nutmeg on top. It's just perfect as a dessert. Lovely. Light and peaceful. Try that sometime. That's a beautiful fruit, and it just balances in so well with the the yogurt. It's a shame to hear they've had a <laughs> not no no such thing. But okay. um, but it best. sounds like they will be um, there'll be not many of them around this year because of the no. the floods. So hopefully you can eat your lovely dessert. Well, I'm still buying them. Although I've got a passion fruit plants in, and they grow very rapidly. But I'm not getting the flowering from it. And it says it takes two or three years for them to get to that production stage but the one I'm getting the, the gear I'm getting from uh, from the uh, the market is uh, lovely and full the when you cut them open they are quite full and fresh and uh, not too crinkly buy them when they're still a little bit firm preferably so they don't crinkle up which is showing they're getting older and you'll find it's a magnificent balance to something I suppose you could use cream you could use ice cream but I prefer the yogurt because I think it's very good for you Sounds like a healthy option. Thank you so much for calling in. Okay, bye. Glenn from Goolwa there. Finally today, I guess we'll stay with the food theme. China grows about 75% of the global garlic crop, believe it or not, but Australian farmers are offering a homegrown alternative to cheaper imported bulbs. Pan Paramedic Richard Corley and his teacher aide wife Sharon settled on Aussie purple garlic when they were looking to grow their ex-dairy bean and banana farm at Como. And as Jennifer Nichols discovered, they braid the stems, a fancy but functional way to add value to their beautiful bulbs. It's amazing inside this shed. I wish people could see it, but we can describe it. You've got ropes hanging from the ceiling with bunches of garlic hanging off it, all curing. It's a side, isn't it? I call it the garlic forest. We're slowly working our way through the forest this year. 2021, we planted. We planted in April and um, harvest in August. Family and friends help us out. I've got nephews that help plant. We plant in one day. We just feel wonderful that we can supply fresh Australian grown garlic to uh, replace the imports. We're on 33 acres, which was an old ex-dairy bean farm and bananas. Over the last seven years, we've been having a go at growing some garlic, Aussie purple. We started just from getting a braid from a grower down at the Noosa Farmers Market. So we've slowly built up our numbers. From one braid of garlic, yep. wow. Yep. And how many garlic bulbs did you end up producing this year? This year only 7,000. We did eight to nine the previous year. It was a good year. This year, not as well. Is that because of the horrendous amount of rain that we had at the start? We got our 300 mil there in um, late April. Was um, that in one day? Uh, in one week. We mound the garlic and it came through really well actually. So it's a combination of a bit of the rain. We were selling the larger bulbs and this year we're keeping them for replanting. And we've just trialled this year as well with uh, the overhead irrigation. We've got a large spring-fed dam. Uh, we're very lucky to be able to irrigate. I saw it on my way in. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, liquid gold. We plant in April. We usually do sugarcane mulch and we've had real trouble with weeds during winter. And we'll put on a biodegradable weed mat, which worked a treat for us this year, cutting down our work for the weeds throughout the winter. And I'm hoping to go up to about 10,000, you know, just over a quarter acre. And how do you juggle this with your day jobs? It does take a lot of juggling, but we thoroughly enjoy it. To uh, come home from work, to get out on the tractor once it's germinating, to see it come through the mulch, it's such a wonderful feeling. It's lovely. 
I think that's the benefit of going to the markets too and actually selling to the people who are going to eat it and their response and how much they love it and appreciate talking to the grower as well. It's nice to be there. And what about the feedback when they've used it and come back to chat to you? I love the foodies. <laughs> they have great reviews. Yeah, it's just wonderful how everyone supports us, especially in the Kin Kin area and surrounds and family. A lot of Christmas presents are going out of braids, which we're really happy about because they store a lot longer. And yeah, the general feedback is just how much flavour and moistness and that in the garlic, which they don't get at the shops from the you know imported stuff. And how do people react to the braiding? It must add value because it just looks so pretty. They are the most popular there, definitely. Uh, I think people like to see that hanging in the kitchen, cut a bulb off and uh, into the dinner. A lot of people don't like cutting them off because they look so good. (laughs) They don't want to use them. But I keep encouraging them to eat it because it tastes as good as it looks. We've just picked this lot down. So it's basically coming up the stalk, cleaning off the edges. We're doing groups of 10 this year. Keep them all the same weight so that we can do a general pricing. This is a two-person job. It is. That's why our labour on it is a little bit higher in our cost. So can you describe what you're doing? I gather the first three that I've selected to fit in nicely with each other. Richard then ties the three together with a little bit of twine, trims that off. So I've got my three sections to braid, just like plaiting really. And then we just basically add to the middle and fold over from the right, add to the middle, fold over from the left, add to the middle and continue that. We have had a lot of suggestions to add flowers, I'd love to do that if I had the time. <laughs> we well, could put time in there as well. <laughs> the herb, that is. idea. <laughs> My girlfriend has done it and it looks fantastic. It smells. It's amazing. So now that I've done the 10 in there, I'm just continuing the plait up the stalk. So it looks and hangs well. Make sure it's straight. And then Richard ties off the end. And we put our Noosa Hinterland Garlic label on it. Oh, how good does that look? Trim off the top and ready for the markets. Richard and Sharon Corley from Noosa Hinterland Garlic there. What uh, an interesting way of doing that. That's all we have time for today. I've had another text in on passion fruit, how to eat it. Uh, I've had a text in saying on oysters. That sounds like a brilliant idea. Thanks so much for letting me know that. I'll have to tuck into some oysters and uh, a passion fruit soon. We're approaching one o'clock though. Deb Tribes with you this afternoon.
grass-fed cattle producers says it will be focused and nimble when it comes to dealing with industry issues. At the first board meeting today, Queensland-based David Foote was elected as chair alongside six board members. David Foote has only recently stepped back as head of Australian Country Choice, which operates Australia's largest vertically integrated beef supply chain and also a small cattle property in southeast Queensland. David David Foote explains to Amy Phillips why the expensive and distracting restructure was required. I think Cattle Council Australia worked out that its advocacy program needed a refresh. The state farming organisation history was potentially holding it back from achieving its national advocacy plan. And, you know, it's a huge movement for an organisation to stand aside. You know, from 1979, they've been advocating on behalf of the industry. And I think it's really important to recognise the fact that they wished to stand aside to give a new entity a chance to succeed as a representative body. Unfortunately, the restructure has taken years. It's taken a lot of energy and focus away from grass-fed beef issues. How will you be bringing your wealth of experience with Australian Country Choice, which was a vertically integrated beef company? You had both uh, grazing properties, feedlots, and as a processor. How are you going to bring those skills to unite the industry? Amy, fortunately, this is not about me, about David Foote. I have a really exciting cohort board of directors that cover almost every aspect of the industry in. Yes, ACC has given me the opportunity to go from the breeding property through to the retail counter, which is which is a really important part of understanding the whole supply chain. But each of the directors have special niche experiences and opportunities to bring to the table. And I think as a collective and as a very, I guess, much more nimble collective. We're down to a down to a board of eight, uh, which may or may not grow to to nine in the future. I just think we're actually going to be able to be able to be more focused and maybe more directional for the time being. How will you unite the industry, though? How are you going to truly represent uh, the tens of thousands of grass-fed beef producers? That's a really really good question. But the the, the first priority focus, and let's say, Amy. The, the Board of Cattle Australia is only 22 hours old at the moment, so we, we still still need a little bit of breathing room because everything's a priority. But the one thing that came out of our initial board meeting yesterday was the need, desire and the want to unite those 40,000-odd cattle producers across Australia for us to represent them in their advocacy at national levels. How will your group be funded so that you're robust against the likes of your other advocacy groups within the beef chain, like the Australian Lot Feeders Association and the Australian Meat Industry Council? It all comes back to memberships based on value propositions. So we need to be able to show the the people who are out there who haven't chosen to participate in membership of Bird Cattle Council or their SFO, but now that they want to invest in Cattle Australia because they're seeing value, value for money. The other organisations, it's it's tough out there for everybody. There's a high-cost movement to try and cover the continent as large as Australia, and with a membership potential base of 40,000, it's not a cheap process. But we have no silver bullets, we have no gold lining, but we're there, we have sufficient funds to at least get the process started and rolled. 
but we'll also be reaching to a wider audience. We'll, we'll be looking at the RDCs in terms of some program funding where practicable. We'll certainly be looking to seek sponsorship to help it, to help us on this journey. What's going to be Cattle Australia's first issue that you'll address? first issue to address is to harness uh, and unite the 40,000 producers out there at the moment. Your board's not worried about the biosecurity issues, which are only ramping up. We've only just heard about lumpy skin becoming closer again to Australia. Is biosecurity on your radar? Biosecurity should be on the radar of everybody involved in the ruminant industry um, or the cloven-footed industry for FMD. It's certainly a discussion point, but we alone aren't going to change the focus of that. But in concert, this process has been involved in cattle council before. It's involved in every peak council in discussions with government and Animal Health Australia. So we are very much at the table in that journey and we're advocating clearly on behalf of our, of our members. And where to here for your group then? When can members expect to see Cattle Australia uh, lobbying on their behalf and, and, you know, banging on doors in Canberra? Um, well, it was Brisbane last night, Amy. Canberra's re-meeting Thursday, Friday. They probably haven't got room for us yet. And we're not ready because we haven't got a clear message yet of what we are requiring um, from, the, from the federal government. But when we have then we'll be lined up on the door first thing in the morning. There's, of course, a legal battle also underway, uh, brought on by Cattle Producers Australia. Um, what bearing might it have on Cattle Australia? I'm not expecting it to have a bearing because whilst we maintain the ACN, that was a previous dislocation. We're sensitive to it and aware of it, and we'll be trying to meet with all those producers out there to, to I guess, sort it and settle it to go forward. And hopefully they become members. Ideally, they will want to become members, Amy, yes. Cattle Australia Chair David Foote speaking with Amy Phillips there. That's been quite a long-running process, that election and creation of Cattle Australia. We'll keep following how that goes now that they have their board members. Now, uh, farmers are sharing their personal stories to help others prevent accidents and tragedies on farm, and this includes Matthew and Denica Koff from Stockport in the Mid-North, who have worked with Grain Growers and Safe Work SA to produce a video that stresses the importance of communication about on-farm hazards. Brooke Nindorf has this story. In March 2020, uh, our employee was uh, working on his own and he was involved in an accident with a piece of machinery. So we've been working um, to assist him through rehabilitation since that day. That's Danica and Matthew Koff. They farm at Stockport in the Mid-North and are using their own first-hand experience to remind others about the importance of safety on the farm. Farm safety doesn't have to be overwhelming. It doesn't have to be a massive big list of policies and procedures and all that. It can be as simple as, as sitting around with a cup of tea and looking at your farm business and, and just drawing out some very simple improvements that can be done to vastly improve uh, you know, farm health and safety. And if you're talking about it with the people in your business, you might just find that conversation does save someone. It does make them stop and think before they use something in a way that's not safe. Stockport farmers Danica and Matthew Koff. Shona Gowal is the Chief Operating Officer with Grain Growers and says the organisation had already released a lot of farm safety resources already when they were approached by the Koff family to share their story. 
they felt that they had a really important message to share about communication and on-farm hazards, and so it worked in really nicely with the resources that grain growers had released, and then to be able to share that message from Danica and Matthew about their experiences. What do you think it is about those first-hand experiences and hearing it from the person that makes the message stand out even more? I think at the end of the day, no farmer wants to have somebody injured on their farm or as part of their business. Uh, we hear that all the time from our growers, that they are really conscious that they want their farms to be to be safe places and, you know, their family enterprises. But what we do realise is that um, farming environments are unpredictable and that there's lots of changes from day to day, weather's an obvious one with that. And um, Danica and Matthew just have a really important message there about that it's communication between you as an employer, between the, the people that you've got working on your farm, and that um, these conversations are just a great way to highlight some of the hazards that are out there, and then that leads to um, improvements that you can immediately identify and how you can look about implementing changes to address those. How often does grain growers hear about incidents that happen on farms? I think anyone that's working in agriculture, you do hear about things that are happening on farm, but that's things that's a culture um, that we want to make sure is recognised that can be, be changed and addressed. Um, I know that anyone that's ever had um, an incident on their farm, it, it really does take its toll on them. Um, and you'll, you'll see in Danica and Matthew's video how they found that experience. It was It was really heartbreaking for them. And so that Farm safety is really, really critical and people um, working on the farm there are trying to put things in place to address it. And it can take change. Um, it can be a generational implementation at times um, and we know that people can feel it can be a little bit overwhelming um, but there's resources out there that can be used to take a look at your farm business uh, and the ones that I've mentioned from grain growers were intended to be a straightforward resource that can really help with improving those things. What have you noticed, Shona, over the years? Do you think it's getting better with, with farm safety and, and people understanding what they need to do to, to stay safe on the farm? I think that there definitely has been improvements in farm safety and we've seen the statistics are recognising that. But at the end of the day, one person injured is one person too many. So so we really want to um, make sure that that number is at zero where it can be. Um, and we know that there's there's things that do make farming a more hazardous occupation um, and that it is there are resources out there that are to support um, growers and, and farming communities in, in making sure that they can reduce that risk wherever possible. I think with that is that we've, we've heard lots of different innovation from growers about how they're approaching farm safety on their own farm. You can hear from Danica and Matthew about the, the approach that they took. And we've heard from, from others that are even doing things like finding out what sort of um, outside interests that their employers, employees have and making sure, you know, that if they're a part of the local footy club or, or the local netball team, that if that's something that's important to them, that they've got time in their calendar and in their diaries that enable them to, to go off and make their sporting training or, or, you know, make the local school pick up or whatever it might be so that they're not therefore rushing through jobs and, you know, maybe safety could, could end up being um, one of the side effects um, or, or not listen to on that. So there's things like that where people are really thinking about how to make their farms a safer place to work um, and, and it's great to see that out there and we encourage everyone to consider it and, and think about the Grand measures growers. that they can um, put in place around that. Grain Growers Chief Operating Officer Shona Goal speaking with Brooke Nindorf. It's coming up to 18 minutes past 12.
Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinan Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Yes, do get your nominations in. There's lots of different categories, including uh, ones for younger farmers. And speaking of younger farmers, if you're a university student and you're really committed to a career in agriculture, applications are open for the 2023 AgriFutures Horizon Scholarship Program. Recipients receive $10,000 over two years and the opportunity to network with the biggest minds, biggest and brightest minds, I should say, in agriculture. Now, it's open to all sorts of students. It's not just for people who are studying agriculture. The industry is facing a skills shortage in a number of areas and as a result, scholarship recipient Lachlan Bryant told Jennifer Nichols that the opportunities are incredible. I'm a 19-year-old uni student. I've just completed my second year at the University of Queensland based out of Gatton campus um, and I'm studying agricultural science, majoring in agronomy, uh, which is soil and plant science. People that don't know what agronomy is, I'm off a farm in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, a dairy and poultry farm, which my mum is currently working, but it's third generation, so it's uh, kind of in my blood, you could say. But yeah, I'm really passionate about agriculture and making a difference for farmers into the future, and that's why I'm studying ag. And I got involved in the AgriFutures program because I'm a uni student, and I, <laughs> if I'm to be honest, really appreciated the money. But what I've gotten out of it um, was probably a lot more in their professional development programs and, and that kind of thing. So that's something that AgriFutures is really, really good for. It's a $10,000 bursary, isn't it? So that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a $10,000 bursary. But on top of that, you also get um, a placement with um, your sponsor. So I'm sponsored by Grains and Research Development Corporation. It's a two-year program and every year you get a two-week placement, but you also get the opportunity to go down to uh, the Have a Horizon conference. Everyone from AgriFutures meets together and then part of that is all of the scholars go down there and we do a professional development program with them, which sounds weird, but the scholarship program has given me a lot more opportunity through the networking and conferences and that kind of thing than the money has. Um, there's a lot of scholarship programs out there that can give you money and, and it's really appreciated. But yeah, to be able to actually grow and connect and learn is really valuable. How do your peers that you went to school with view what you're doing now? <laughs> I think um, agriculture's got quite a, a negative uh, negative view. <laughs> I was always given a bit of a hard time for not doing a real science when I studied agricultural science, even though it's, you know, I study just the same subjects as anyone else doing, so, you know, I study a lot of the uh, UQ science subjects that are relevant across the board. Um, so I don't think I probably got as much respect for what I was studying until I realised how much money there is in these scholarships and that kind of thing, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, really? It's, yeah, it's, I don't know, people think that agriculture is a bit of a, a dumb, not very smart industry to be in, even though it's 
got some really amazing minds out there and yeah, lots of development and lots of opportunity. And young people with skills are so desperately needed. I was just looking at some of these statistics that the average age of an agricultural worker is 51, which is 10 years higher than the national average. And in 2022, there are over 5,000 entry-level positions across the agricultural industry with only 800 to 900 graduating students to fill them. Which is, yeah. <laughs> so the job prospects are quite huge for you. Absolutely, yeah. And that's when we went there to the last Futures conference. Yeah, they're just screaming out for people. You know, they're already offering positions um, Yeah, because they just want us really badly. And I think that that's agriculture as a whole. You know, if, if you want to work in an industry that's got a lot of funding at the moment, <laughs> agriculture is ready to boom. Um, and AgriFutures is not the only scholarship that's out there at the moment. I would argue, you know, talking to people that agriculture has the most scholarships out of any industry out there. And I don't think a lot of people realise either how relevant it is to everyone. In the AgriFutures program, there's, you know, there's a very broad range of people. There's food scientists that are in the program. There are engineers, people studying marine biology. Um, So it's not just, you know, the agricultural science students that have got this opportunity. It's a really, really broad range of people. Um, And that's the great thing about agriculture is that you can be an engineer. You can be pretty much anything because it's such a broad industry. And if you had computer skills, you'd be in high demand too, working out things like logistics, programming... Absolutely. Yeah, no, all of these things. And that's what the that's what the AgriFuture scholarships, it's moving towards too. Um, you know, so anyone can apply if you've got an interest in the agricultural industry and you want to apply your studies to that. Lachlan Bryant, an AgriFuture's Horizon Scholarship recipient and ag science student from Canberra on the Sunshine Coast hinterland. And uh, he's not the only one who has taken this up, and you can too. Applications for the scholarship close on Friday the 13th of January. So do get your applications in. A lot of people have just finished uh, their school year. They're perhaps looking at university, and I'm sure a scholarship would come in handy. So do consider those AgriFuture's Horizon scholarships, uh, among many others. There's many of scholarships for agriculture if you are interested in pursuing that as study at university. Let across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, where Senior Forecaster Vince Rollins joins me. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. Now, I was driving to work this morning, and it was sleety and grey, and I, and I was cold as well. I thought it was more like August weather rather than December weather. Just how cold is it compared to normal at this time of year? <coughs> Yeah, it has been a bit like that, Cassie. Summer seems to have disappeared, but uh, yeah, looking at uh, some of the the forecast anomalies um, around the region, yeah, maximum temperatures yesterday, which is obviously today's going to be pretty similar. We're looking at uh, anywhere between about five and ten degrees below average. So up in uh, <clears throat> the pastoral districts, we had a few locations uh, like Roxby Downs was nine degrees below average for this time of year and Amuka nine degrees as well but uh, around Hawker they're actually 11 degrees um, below average for this time of year so yeah it's pretty pretty unusual to to see uh, these sort of temperatures at this time of year I mean the, the patterns do move through pretty quickly and it's not, you know, not uh, out of the question that we do see you know cooler temperatures at the beginning of summer but <clears throat> yeah it just feels like uh, summer has uh, sort of disappeared but uh, there is some good news though we are going to see temperatures warming over 
the next few days. But at the moment, uh, these cooler southerlies are going to continue through today uh, and the next couple of days. We've got a pretty dominant high-pressure system sitting south of WA at the moment. It's really moving slowly. So uh, as it just tracks eastwards, you know, we will see these winds continuing, just slowly going round to the southeast over the next couple of days. But, uh, yeah, temperatures are going to remain uh, quite a bit below average for at least for the next couple of days and a little bit of shower activity around southern parts as well we did see uh, some falls around in the last 24 hours and most being at Mount Gambier with 11 millimetres uh, up in the Adelaide Hills we saw some falls getting up to around 4 millimetres and uh, a few millimetres around parts of the lower southeast just north of Mount Gambier and that, that's basically due to a little frontal line of showers that uh, moved through the southeast this morning. Currently sitting just south of Adelaide, so we see those showers just pushing a bit further north as the afternoon progresses, but uh, yeah, not looking at too much rainfall else, elsewhere across the state. There is a slight risk we could see some thunderstorm activity over near the WA border as we get into the latter part of the afternoon but uh, at the moment looks like most of that activity is uh, yeah, just well uh, west of the border so we see it happens this afternoon but uh, as I mentioned over the next couple of days the high continues to move eastwards we will see the showers in the south just easing and contracting to coastal fringes still expecting that thunderstorm activity to um, possibly develop or continue in the the northwest of the state and as we get towards the sort of weekend it looks like there's more of a chance of those thunderstorms moving into our state and it could be quite gusty as well and there's potential there for some relatively good falls with those thunderstorms so we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that but (coughs) elsewhere across the state it's looking uh, pretty dry Those thunderstorms do uh, track eastwards over the latter part of the weekend and early next week just as a a bit of a weak trough moves across the state but uh, that's going to help drive temperatures up a little bit as well so ahead of that trough we will see winds swinging around to the east uh, and eventually a bit more northeasterly so um, yeah with uh, we'll see these temperatures certainly warming um, as we get through the weekend and early next week so a return to some temperatures in the low to mid 30s particularly over western and northern parts of the state but eventually that warm air will track right across the state so uh, Cassie if you're hanging out to see some warmer weather is a bit over this this cooler this, these cooler conditions then uh, certainly there is some warmer uh, more summer like weather on the way for, for South Australia so it would be nice to uh, get rid of those jackets and jumpers again and uh, see some warmer weather moving across it would. It's. It's. Uh, I mean, no one's wishing for a heat wave, but no. it would be nice to not feel like it was winter. Just some some nice mild temperatures in the twenties would be lovely. I think at this time of year. It would be. I think we we haven't seen that many warm days really for you know being pretty close to Christmas. So uh, yeah, it'd be good to to get a few more warmer days. Thanks for that, Vince Rollins from the Bureau of Meteorology, there in the far west of New South Wales. It's going to be sunny, but it's going to get quite windy tomorrow. Winds are picking up to 25 to 35 kilometres an hour. Overnight, getting down to 11 to 15 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching the low to high 20s. The lower western, pretty similar situation, partly cloudy. You're getting a little windy, 20 to 30 kilometres an hour. Overnight, 
cooling down to 7 to 10 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low 20s. More to come in the next half hour, including how to braid garlic. It's not something I've tried, but I'll have more on that soon as we approach 12.30 on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today. Once again, the focus is on the Riverland with Agriculture Minister Murray Watt visiting this week. And it's not just the flood that's on people's minds. We're in a desperate situation. We need to sit down and work, find a way forward. A lot of people are going to get hurt out of this and we can't afford, particularly in South Australia, to lose the wine industry. More on that soon. And do you love your passion fruit on your pavlova at Christmas? I'll have an update on the availability of the fruit this summer. Everything's a bit topsy-turvy at the moment with this weather being a little cooler in some parts of the state and very hot in other parts of the country as well. So uh, we'll take a look at what passion fruit is doing this year in the lead up to Christmas. But first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, a community on Queensland's Western Downs is reeling after six people, including two police officers, were killed in a shooting. Four officers were at a rural property at Weambilla, west of Brisbane, yesterday as part of a search for a missing New South Wales man when they came under fire. 29-year-old Constable Rachel McCrow and 26-year-old Constable Matthew Arnold from the Chinchilla Station were killed, along with a member of the public. The Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen is heaping pressure on his political opponents to back the government's plan to curb skyrocketing power prices. Federal Parliament is being recalled on Thursday to vote on legislation, which includes a one-year cap on wholesale gas prices and a $1.5 billion support package for households and business. The Coalition says it's open to supporting parts of the bill, but has not yet settled its overall position. And the State Government has secured hotel accommodation for people who are left with nowhere to go when their homes are flooded in the Riverland, 200 beds have been booked up and down the river to provide emergency and short-term accommodation. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. Riverland wine growers have shared their struggles with the Federal Agriculture Murray Watt amid flood concerns. Uh, The meeting follows an invitation from the region's industry body, Riverland Wine, that's requesting a $5 million support package to help sell more wine and support growers to transition to new varieties. Minister Watt told Eliza Berla she wanted to see firsthand the issues that the Riverland is facing. Well, obviously the Riverland is going through a difficult time at the moment and I've, I've now seen for myself the water levels that we're talking about here and, of course, there's more to come in coming weeks. So there's nothing quite like being on the ground and seeing it for yourself to understand what people are going through. And I think I was certainly aware before coming here that local local wine growers had been doing it tough for a couple of years, losing the China market and some of the other issues, but just hearing it from people face-to-face has been very useful. So I think clearly there's some immediate help that we can be providing to the state government and councils around dealing with these floods and it's good to see that we've got three defence high clearance vehicles coming to the region in the next couple of days but we'll be working very cooperatively with the state government to make sure that whatever this region needs it gets. And what is some of the immediate assistance that your government is considering? Look, I think at the moment because we're in that 
sort of pre-flood period, even though there is water around, we know that worse is coming. It's very likely, I think, that we'll need to see some extra extra infrastructure support and potentially personnel as well if the state government gets to the point that it thinks that it needs defence personnel to back up its own SES crews, then that's obviously something we consider and we've done elsewhere. And I think before too long we're probably going to be having some conversations about more financial support for people as well. Already that between the state government and the federal government there's been some small levels of assistance provided, but ordinarily more of that flows once you've had the peak of the flood and obviously that's expected in the next week or two. Growers are concerned that I know the state government's saying that support should be immediate, but what is immediate and often with other disasters that months or years afterwards people are still waiting. Is there anything that your government or that you might be working with other governments to do to make sure that's in people's banks before Christmas? Yeah, well ever since we were elected a few months ago we've tried to take a different approach to dealing with natural disasters and it really comes down to being better prepared and responding much more quickly. So we're doing that preparation work now with the states and if you have a look at how we've operated in terms of the other states that have had floods recently I think you'd see that we've been able to act support much more quickly than what we've seen in years gone by and that's certainly what we'd be trying to do here in South Australia as well. The way these things work is that state governments make requests for support, we consider them and then either agree or don't agree. More often than not we agree and we try to do that as quickly as we can. So depending on what we see in South Australia it would be reasonable to expect more payments for individuals but also potentially farmers and small businesses. It just depends how severe the damage ends up being. And have you had a chance to look at the Riverland Wines position paper and uh, their requests for financial assistance for growers? I have, and in fact they communicated with me uh, a few weeks back wearing my agriculture hat uh, even before uh, we saw these floods come along, and that's something we're giving thought to. One of the really key things that we want to try and do is continue to open up new markets for product because uh, even before I came here today I'd heard from Riverland growers um, that with the loss of the China market, and uh, as much as we would like to see that turn around soon, that might take a little bit of time, but we're, we're currently currently funding grant programs to open up new markets in places like Vietnam, Thailand. We think there's some opportunities in India as well, given the size of the population there. And the sheer amount of wine that is currently sitting in storage vats means there's just no capacity for next year's vintage, let alone the year after. So the more that we can be doing to help open up those new markets, that gets product offshore, making money for local wine growers, and that's what we want to see happen. When can people in the Riverland expect to hear anything from you about further assistance for the floods? on one hand and further assistance for wine growers? Yeah, look, I think in terms of flood assistance, as I say, ordinarily most of that would flow once you get through the peak because that that gives you a sense of what is actually needed. Until you see those floods happen, everyone's sort of second-guessing what will end up happening, but we will act as quickly as we possibly can to get assistance out to people. In terms of the wine growers and broader assistance, that's something we're working on and I'd hope to be able to have something to say in the new year. Federal Minister for Agriculture, Murray Watt. Riverland Wines' Lyndall Rowe says she's hopeful that authorities will come to the table with an offer of support soon. We've had some really positive conversations and really positive feedback from government and you know when we're still in conversation with them so we're very hopeful that there's going to be some support. And just an update on vineyard inundation so last time we spoke we talked about how many hectares of vineyards would be inundated at 200 gigalitres. Inkali from Vine Health said you have some new modelling on 250 gigalitres what that could look like. Again we're not saying that it will get to that but again we're about giving as much information to people as we possibly can so that's looking at about 900 hectares which is a considerable increase. Kultong grape grower Jack Papagiorgio says many families will suffer if the government can't provide further support for the industry. We're in a desperate situation. We need to sit down and work, find a way forward. A lot of people are going to get hurt out of this and we can't afford 
particularly in South Australia, to lose the wine industry. Here in the Riverland, we're very much family orientated um, when it comes to pro-production. So there's a lot of tensions I hear, between growers because some growers have not bothered to spray. The other grower next door is trying to protect his crops. So there's a little tension there. Yeah. You don't want that. And that, that's just purely pressure comes on. All right, the floods, we understand that, but other stuff, it's man-made. Yeah. Some of our marketing and lost opportunities or just not talking to each other. Cool Tongue wine grape grower Jack Papagiorgio ending that story by Eliza Burlage. The State Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven says while the focus is on the immediate flood threat, discussions are ongoing with Riverland Wine and Persa about planning and support for the region and the broader industry. And while we're speaking about the river, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is urgently seeking an alternative way to consult with First Nations communities in the Northern Basin after cutting ties with an advisory group it says failed to deliver on contracts. The Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations, or NBAN, as it's known, was notified by the authority last month that contractual arrangements worth hundreds of thousands of dollars would be finalised. The MDBA confirmed the most recent major contracts provided by NBAN include $400,000 per year, uh, included a commitment of $400,000 per year to sustain NBAN's internal operations and a $1.25 million deal to fund a cultural flows project officer to assist First Nations people to develop cultural flow plans. Plans. Both contracts expired on October 31st. Under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, the authority has to consult with First Nations when approving water resource plans. And uh, the uh, water resource plans also set out how water is shared across the river system. And while other states have completed their WRP, New South Wales is actually running incredibly late with the MDBA approving just two of the 20 water resource plans required from that state. There's more information on that story online at abc.net.au slash rural. It is 21 minutes to one. Half a step forward, foot to the pitch. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Live and ad-free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports, Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You'd like a bit of fresh passion fruit on your pavlova at Christmas? Well, yesterday when we were talking about pineapples, I got so many great recipes that I'm keen to know now how you actually like to use passion fruit in your cooking as well. Because, uh, well, while the pineapples are going to be thick on the ground, it seems they might be about, about the, the passion fruit might be a bit thin on the ground this year with the president of Passion Fruit Australia saying growers will be playing catch up for the next few years after a perfect storm of weather killed large amounts of vines this year. Dennis Chant told Jennifer Nichols he hoped supply would increase in time for Christmas, but many fields of purple passion fruit will need to be replanted. It's been a very challenging year, particularly in a lot of our growing areas. The main growing areas are the Tweed Valley, the Sunshine Coast, Bundaberg area and then far north Queensland. Most of those areas have had extraordinary amounts of rain, so fungal diseases, 
not being able to get on to spray, too much water, weather was too cold. So yeah, I think it's been the perfect storm actually against the industry this year. So it's been quite a challenge. And what has that meant for production compared to an average year? I think we're going to feel that probably for the next year or two because we generally uh, plant every, uh, plants last about three years. So a lot of crops have been totally wiped out, so we'll be playing catch-up for the next couple of years. So I think production is probably, particularly of the purple varieties that we get in the south, I think there's more production of the Panama varieties which are grown up in North Queensland. Their production hasn't been as affected, so the market supply for the purples is probably going to be a little bit tight over the next year or two, but we're working very hard to get back to uh, what we were before. What's that going to mean with prices to consumers and supply for our PAVs over Christmas? Oh, well, hopefully. um, I know our own crops are starting to pick up a bit, so we're hoping that we will have some supplies, particularly of the purples, for Christmas. But because we are spread over such a wide region, I'm sure there will be supplies coming on the market for Christmas time. And it's always a good time for passion fruit sales, obviously, as you say, for pavlova and that. And demand for passion fruit pre-Christmas is always very strong. So we're working very hard to ensure that we can supply that. I know in my coverage of the passion fruit industry over recent years, at times the prices have been so far below the cost of production. How has that been tracking? Passion fruit is produced all year round and prices per case can vary from $25 to $150 depending on the supply. So a month or two ago you would have been paying $150 a case for purples because they are so scarce at the time. Come just after Christmas, uh, prices should be back to more normal, $30, $35. That depends then on what the supermarkets do with the prices because, you know, those margins obviously are a big factor in what the consumer pays for passion fruit. Things have been a bit quiet since COVID because the market's been so unpredictable. But pre-COVID, we were having some dialogue through our agents with the supermarkets to say, well, look, when there is good supplies, because supplies of passion fruit can pick up very quickly we have these big flushes and then there's a lot of fruit on the market now that's the time when the supermarkets should be looking at putting them in on as a special to move the product and get more out there because passion fruit is very popular but sometimes it can be an expensive fruit if they were selling it in a bag of five or something like that rather than individually that would make it more palatable yeah and one of the challenges is being able to react when these big supply peaks come on because they're very hard to predict we generally get about three or four peaks a year and you can't pick it for a week or two before so look there are some challenges but the acceptance of Australian passion fruit is very high the quality is very high and we aim to continue that the supermarkets obviously are are a very big distributor of our product now so we're keen to work with them to ensure that you know they are available good quality at a a reasonable price. What about imports? I hear the potential of fruit coming in from Vietnam. Yeah well we've only just had a presentation today from the Department of Agricultural and Fisheries, uh, the Federal Department, that uh, will uh, next week be releasing a draft report on the import of passion fruit into uh, Australia or, or sorry that will be released next year. Uh, Today is the first time they've come to the industry to let us know what's going on. We have been aware that Vietnam is making an application to bring in passion fruit. 
The only response we can give relates to the biosecurity threats, factors such as the commercial factors, whether the market's going to be flooded with cheap passion fruit from Vietnam. That's not a factor that they take into account because we are part of the World Trade Organisation and we have to give market access where it is safe to give market access. Do you have any biosecurity concerns in regards to pests and diseases that are overseas that aren't currently in Australia? Well, biosecurity is very important to us. You know, we're involved within the Varroa mite control program, for instance. Now, that's costing the industry a lot of money. So we're very, very conscious that, you know, biosecurity, all the boxes are ticked. Now, one of the challenges for a small industry like passion fruit is where do we get the resources from to be very analytical about the type of pests that we should be looking at. And that's the sort of assurances that the people from the department are giving us at the moment, that they've had experts in Vietnam and it is open to the state governments and the industry to uh, scrutinise the processes that they're going through. So we're really putting them through the mill this morning. Um, The processes they've got for Australia are very stringent, but it's not 100% fail-safe. It's a difficult line to tread, isn't it? Because we like to export our... Yes, and that's produce, the thing, and know. so they and the, need fair access in too, yeah. as long as it's not going to jeopardise things. And, and, and the point was made that you know, sixty percent or more of Australian produce is exported. You know, so we we're in the world market, and we have to be conscious of that. Are many Australian, if any, passion fruit exported? No, there's no export market out of Australia for fresh passion fruit anyway. Um, We totally survive on uh, supplying the domestic market. And what's your favourite way to eat passion fruit? Oh, look, I just like to crack it and just eat it fresh in the field, you know, and we do the taste tests all the time just to see how it's going, you know, and, you know, whether it's nice and sweet. So typically purple passion fruit, you harvest them when they've fallen on the ground and that's when they're at their sweetest. Uh, The Panamas, they tend to pick them. But, yeah, no, I just like it fresh straight out of the skin. Passion Fruit Australia President Dennis Chant speaking with Jennifer Nichols. He likes it straight out of the passion fruit. How do you like your passion fruit? You can text me on 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 891. I don't eat a lot of passion fruit. I think I quite like passion fruit in smoothies and things like that. That's probably the main way I would eat it, but I'd love to know how you eat it. You can text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 891. I'm going to take you to Wairiwa now in eastern Victoria because a program called Top Soils by the Lancare and East Gippsland Catchment Management Authority caused a bit of a stir among farmers there last week and Peter Somerville went along. Here at Wairiwa between Now and Hour and Orbost in East Gippsland, farmers have gathered in the local hall. They're huddling around a small plastic container all in the name of improving their properties. They bury dung, they let water into the soil, they move the soil around and, you know, encourage more earthworms. People just seem to be wanting them. Penny Gray is the Far East Victoria Landcare and Topsoils facilitator. She says the farmers here are getting excited about dung beetles. They're really keen to um, diversify their species and get a greater range across the seasons because each species of beetle is active at a particular time or night or day. So yeah, they're fascinating. But here at Wairiwa today, farmers are learning the nuances of trapping dung beetles and breeding them in nurseries on their farms. Penny says that's a relatively new development. We're just encouraging everyone to give it a go. And like we said, we might do a dung beetle capture bus trip. Who knows? (laughs) 
Is that on the cards? Oh, hopefully. you got to think big. <laughs> if you think about your classic uh, sheep or cattle property, there's a lot of dung being produced every day. If it weren't for the dung beetles, that dung would remain on the surface. It wouldn't be being incorporated into the soil, so you're losing all of the rich organic matter. And you're also providing a fantastic breeding ground for flies and also gastrointestinal nematodes. The dung beetles incorporate the dung into the soil and suppress pest and parasite life cycles. That's Dr Russ Barrow. He's the presenter today and a researcher with Eco Insects. It's so encouraging when you come to these events. The enthusiasm of the participants is infectious and people often say I'm an enthusiastic presenter but it's because of the, you know, the infectious uh, enthusiasm that I get from them. Dung beetles are just good. I mean, there's, people are always saying, but they're an imported species. Is there any negative side effect? And everyone mentions the cane toad. Dung beetles are just good from, from you know, day one. They've been carefully selected to operate on the dung of introduced animals, sheep, cattle, horses and don't interfere with uh, uh, other ecosystems. Part of today you are focusing on building nurseries for dung beetles. Can you tell me about that? What is a dung beetle nursery? How would you build one? What do you do with it? Sure. So a, a dung beetle nursery is a, a reduced number of beetles, typically 100 to 200 beetles, that we would place into a one square metre container. Typically there we're taking an IBC, an intermediate bulk container, chopping it in half to produce a container that we place soil in and that becomes a home for dung beetles for anything up to 12 months. So we would take that uh, container, the IBC, and we would place a colony of beetles, as I say, typically 100 to 200 beetles, feed them. In that container they would continue to breed and look, all things going to plan, at the end of the uh, season we might have tenfold increase so those 100 beetles would turn into a thousand 200 to 2000 so rather than spending the money on buying in large amounts of beetles you can invest that time into growing them yourself on your property. Jared Rush and Aminia Hep have travelled from Goongra today they're trying to reintroduce dung beetles at their property after the bushfires. Last year when we moved back to Goongra we bought a small herd of dairy cows and have noticed that there just aren't any dung beetles, so it's been a problem we've been talking about for a while. And what is the problem with that? Well, the cow dung just sits on top of the grass and doesn't break down very quickly at all. It just sits there for months sometimes, and it makes it a lot harder for the grass to grow back and the fertility. Um, And what have you learnt today? What will you do after this? Well, we're going to set up a dung beetle nursery and uh, build up um, the species that we have been given and then we'll be able to reintroduce them back into our paddocks and our cell grazing for our cows and hopefully from there we'll be also um, able to spread them around town. But one of the other things that we learned today was how to, how to trap them when we're out um, travelling around uh, from different farms and um, so that we can identify what species they are and then bring them back and um, hopefully we can get you know six to a dozen different species going um, in Goongara again. Is that something you can see yourself doing? Do you think you'll have dung beetle trapping holidays or go for dung beetle drives? <laughs> Do you think that's part of your future now? I think it definitely could be. We might not go specifically on those holidays but we'll just bring the trap along whenever we go anywhere probably. <laughs>
Jared Roosh and Amina Hep ending that report from Peter Somerville at the Wairiwa Hall. Their dung beetles are amazing little things, aren't they? Even though they're introduced, they do a power of good. Now, I was interested to hear how you liked to enjoy your passion fruit. It's not a fruit I eat very often, but I think Glenn from Goolwa might. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Kathy. Look, as a mere male, it enjoys a dessert with fruit. I've buy a passion fruit direct from a market here from a guy from Murray Bridge and I've applied it with uh, a lovely Greek on top of Greek um, firm uh, yogurt and I find that is a nice balance the creaminess of the yogurt with the with the lovely sharp tough flavor of uh, passion fruit maybe a little bit of sprinkle of um, of a uh, uh, something like um, nutmeg on top it's just perfect as a dessert Lovely. Light and peaceful. Try that sometime. That's a beautiful fruit and it just balances in so well with the, the yogurt. It's a shame to hear they've had a... <laughs> not, no, no such thing. But, okay. um, but yeah, it sounds like they will be, um, there'll be not many of them around this year because of the, no. the floods. So hopefully you can eat your lovely dessert. Well, I'm still buying them. Although I've got a passion fruit plant in and they grow very rapidly, but I'm not getting the flowering from it. And it says it takes two or three years for them to get to that production stage but the one i'm getting the, the gear i'm getting from uh, from the uh, the market is uh, lovely and full the when you cut them open they are quite full and fresh and uh, not too crinkly buy them when they're still a little bit firm preferably so they don't crinkle up which is showing they're getting older and you'll find it's a magnificent balance to something i suppose you could use cream you could use ice cream but i prefer the yogurt because i think it's very good for you Sounds like a healthy option. Thank you so much for calling in. Okay, bye. Glenn from Goolwer there. Finally today, I guess we'll stay with the food theme. China grows about 75% of the global garlic crop, believe it or not, but Australian farmers are offering a homegrown alternative to cheaper imported bulbs. Pan paramedic Richard Crawley and his teacher aide wife Sharon settled on Aussie purple garlic when they were looking to grow their ex-dairy bean and banana farm at Como. And as Jennifer Nichols discovered, they braid the stems, a fancy but functional way to add value to their beautiful bulbs. It's amazing inside this shed. I wish people could see it, but we can describe it. You've got ropes hanging from the ceiling with bunches of garlic hanging off it, all curing. It's a side, isn't it? I call it the garlic forest. We're slowly working our way through the forest this year. 2021, we planted. We planted in April and um, harvest in August. Family and friends help us out. I've uh, got nephews that help plant. We plant in one day. We just feel wonderful that we can supply fresh Australian grown garlic to uh, replace the imports. We're on 33 acres, which was an old ex-dairy bean farm and bananas. Over the last seven years, we've been having a go at growing some garlic, Aussie purple. We started just from getting a braid from a grower down at the Noosa Farmers Market. So we've slowly built up our numbers. From one braid of garlic, yep. wow. Yep. And how many garlic bulbs did you end up producing this year? This year only 7,000. We did eight to nine the previous year. It was a good year. This year, not as well. Is that because of the horrendous amount of rain that we had at the start? We got our 300 mil there in um, late April. Was um, that in one day? Uh, in one week. <laughs> We mound the garlic and it came through really well actually. So it's a combination of a bit of the rain. We were selling the larger bulbs and this year we're keeping them for replanting. 
and we've just trialled this year as well with uh, the overhead irrigation. We've got a large spring-fed dam. Uh, we're very lucky to be able to irrigate. I saw it on my way in. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, liquid gold. We plant in April. We usually do sugarcane mulch and we've had real trouble with weeds during winter and we were put on a biodegradable weed mat, which worked a treat for us this year, cutting down our work for the weeds throughout the winter. And I'm hoping to go up to about 10,000, you know, just over a quarter acre. And how do you juggle this with your day jobs? It does take a lot of juggling, but we thoroughly enjoy it. To uh, come home from work, to get out on the tractor, once it's germinating, to see it come through the mulch. It's such a wonderful feeling. It's lovely. I think that's the benefit of going to the markets too and actually selling to the people who are going to eat it and their response and how much they love it and appreciate talking to the grower as well. It's nice to be there. And what about the feedback when they've used it and come back to chat to you? I love the foodies. <laughs> they have great reviews. Yeah, it's just wonderful how everyone supports us, especially in the Kin Kin area and surrounds and family. A lot of Christmas presents are going out of braids, which we're really happy about because they store a lot longer. And yeah, the general feedback is just how much flavour and moistness and that in the garlic, which they don't get at the shops from the you know imported stuff. And how do people react to the braiding? It must add value because it just looks so pretty. They are the most popular there, definitely. Uh, I think people like to see that hanging in the kitchen, cut a bulb off and uh, into the dinner. A lot of people don't like cutting them off because they look so good. <laughs> they don't want to use them. But I keep encouraging them to eat it because it tastes as good as it looks. We've just picked this lot down. So it's basically coming up the stalk, cleaning off the edges. We're doing groups of 10 this year. Keep them all the same weight so that we can do a general pricing. Is this a two-person job? It is. That's why our labour on it is a little bit higher in our cost. So can you describe what you're doing? I gather the first three that I've selected to fit in nicely with each other. Richard then ties the three together with a little bit of twine, trims that off. So I've got my three sections to braid, just like plaiting really. And then we just basically add to the middle and fold over from the right, add to the middle, fold over from the left, add to the middle and continue that. We have had a lot of suggestions to add flowers, I'd love to do that if I had the time. <laughs> well, you could put time in there as well. <laughs> the herb, that is. idea. <laughs> My girlfriend has done it and it looks fantastic. Smells. It's amazing. So now that I've done the 10 in there, I'm just continuing the plait up the stalk. So it looks and hangs well. Make sure it's straight. And then Richard ties off the end. And we put our noosa hinter and garlic label on it. Oh, how good does that look? Voila. Trim off the top and ready for the markets. Richard and Sharon Corley from Noosa Hinterland Garlic there. What uh, an interesting way of doing that. That's all we have time for today. I've had another text in on passion fruit, how to eat it. Uh, I've had a text in saying on oysters. That sounds like a brilliant idea. Thanks so much for letting me know that. I'll have to tuck into some oysters and uh, a passion fruit soon. We're approaching one o'clock though. Deb Tribes with you this afternoon. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.